Hello, I'm Fern Cotton and this is Happy Place, the show that doesn't shy away from getting into the toughest corners of life. Today, I'm chatting to Richard E. Grant. I, I posted a video on New Year's Day saying that my late wife had charged my daughter and I to try and find a pocket full of happiness in each day, knowing that we would be sad, but to try and do that. And that became our mantra for trying to navigate our way through this abyss that grief plunges you into. Richard's breakout acting role was, of course, in With Nail and I in 1987. And ever since, he's been a total national treasure, which is why the way he's been sharing his life and emotions online recently has touched so many people. Joan, his beloved wife of nearly 40 years, died in 2021. Days before she passed away, she set Richard and their daughter, Olivia, the task of finding a pocket full of happiness every day. Not only is that absolutely what he's endeavoured to do, but he's also written a gorgeous book with that title, Remembering Their Life Together. I absolutely loved having this conversation with Richard. He came round to my house on a particularly rainy and miserable day. In fact, you might hear the rain battering on the roof of my little shed that we were recording in. But we had a really lovely, cosy time recording. He just brought so much warmth and kindness into the room with him, which I hope you can really feel when you listen to this beautiful chat. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, here it is. This is the show. Well, Richard E. Grant, welcome to my home. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much for having me. You literally walked up the hill. I did. Because <laughs> <laughs> we are very close neighbours. Yeah, we live in the old age home called Richmond. We really do. We, we are the youngest people in Richmond. Well, you are. <laughs> you are. <laughs> but it's lovely to have you over and we've got so much to talk about. I've been really enjoying recently looking on your Instagram at your morning runs that you've um, you've kind of reinstigated these runs that you you sort of had a fallow period where you yeah stop for two months stop for two months yeah. and now you're back to it. How's yeah. that going? Well, the first day I started two weeks ago, and the first day I, the the rebooting of it after you haven't done it for two months when you're sixty five and a half is very different when you're sixty four mm. or as young as you are. That oh the first day I lolloped and. I was crawling after, you know, a mile. And now I'm almost back up to speed again. That's after so two good. weeks, which is exhilarating. It is, but it shows that it's all in there, isn't it? There's muscle memory. It's there. Yeah, but I think all those muscles are screeching and going, oh, <laughs> let us be old now. Just let it give us a rest. That first day back is awful, though. Brutal. It's so awful. Like, your lungs hurt. Like the cold, And when it's cold, it's kind of a full-bodied... Ouch. Yeah. But so worth it. Yeah. But after three days, I now, I, I can possibly have to do it every day. Every day you're yeah. running? Yeah, I run every day. Wow. And yeah. is, that, is, is that more sort of for your mental state to feel yes. a certain balance, clarity? Yeah, I think that it, it makes you, just makes you feel better. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely does. And if you're as wound up as I was born to be or am, <laughs> then trying to wind down a little bit is always preferable. And my daughter's certainly very grateful when I am less wound <laughs> as a result of a run than not. Mm, I find the same. If I go for a run, I have all my best ideas when I'm running. Yeah. When I come back, I've never regretted going for a run. 
It's just a good thing to do, a good habit to get into. Yeah. Or a fast walk if I can't be bothered to run. And we're lucky we live by the park, so it's ideal. Exactly. But um, do you, you run in a full sort of Lycra Oh, onesie? no. No, 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 no. Okay. I don't own any gear at okay. all. So I'm Likewise. sort of... And I sort of wear anything, sort of yeah. like Jesse's T-shirts and a pair of dirty joggers and mm-hmm. a hat, right. and I'm off. Right. Because otherwise, I think you spend too long procrastinating getting the gear together, and then you yeah. don't do the run. You just got to, you just got to go. Exactly. Get up and go. Agreed. Um, I also love your Instagram because Thank you. I, I really do. I, and you know, as you know, I've, I think I accosted you in the newsagent once years ago because I was obsessed with your show where you visited hotels around the world. I didn't wash for a week. <laughs> <laughs> but I used to wang on about this show on my Radio One show relentlessly. And then I saw you in the newsagent and I was like, I'm just going to say hi. This could be mortifying, but I'm I'm just going to do it. And I did. But anyway. And we're, here we are. And here we are. But I love your Instagram because you are just you. It's a complete, authentic portrayal of who you are on any given day. And obviously, during the last 12 months, yeah. you've been portraying very honestly your process of grieving, mm-hmm. which is by no means a linear process. There's going to be days where, like you've shown, you're you're feeling quite jubilant and you're optimistic. And then there are other days where, quite unexpectedly, you're completely floored by grief. And I think that's been so helpful to so many people who are also going through that experience and, and have been over the last 12 months. And for you to share has been, I think just deeply comforting for a lot of people. And I wonder if you feel the same, that it's helped you in some way connecting with people like that. Oh, thank you. Um, It has in that there was no plan or forethought in any of this. I I posted a video on New Year's Day saying that my late wife had charged my daughter and I to try and find a pocket full of happiness in each day, knowing that we would be sad, but to try and do that. And that became our mantra for trying to navigate our way through this abyss that grief plunges you into. And the social media response I got was so disproportionate to what I thought, you know, people make comments about things on a daily basis that I'm sure you you read your stuff. Um, but it's so connected with people that I then... it's there's There's a cyber community of people that I will never meet who respond, and I've found it, especially when you're so alone, it helps you because you feel that, you know, it's like that, the alien poster, you know that you're not alone, or in space you are alone, but, you know, on, on the planet Earth, you are not alone, and if people have similar or are going through a similar experience, it's, I found it really helpful. Yeah. And if you get trolled, you can block them. Yes. Block those trolls. I mean, what right they have? There would not be many, but you know, when 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 people do come up with stuff, then you just block them. Yeah, because what you're doing is unbelievably helpful. I think we're not very good at grief in the West. We tend to do it very secretively, or we feel like we need to suppress it. That we should not be feeling these emotions at any given time. They're inconvenient, and I think you've given people permission to explore their grief and to go, it's okay that I feel flawed today. It's uh-huh. okay that I feel like I can't move, that I don't want to see anybody, that I just feel completely consumed by it. And I think that's, again, it's so powerful, so connective. Agreed. Good. Mm. Well, I mean, it's it's how my book came about, that uh, publishers uh, called my literary agent. I hadn't written a book for 15 years and said, would I write about this and instantly said, no, I couldn't possibly do that. And my daughter then said to me, I think this would really help you. And so I did, with the proviso that, and the Simon & Schuster, the publishers, agreed very reluctantly that I could write the whole thing out and then give it to my daughter. And if she vetoed a sentence, a paragraph, or the entire thing, I wouldn't take any money up front because I didn't want to jeopardize my relationship with her. So she read it and she said this is an absolute accurate tribute to her mother, my wife, and what our life has been together. And apart, um, she had one paragraph uh, where I described somebody and she said, I think you should rejig this because that person reading it could take this in the wrong way. So I did. 
And apart from that, and I think I, I misspelt one of her friend's surnames, so <laughs> Hill instead of Hills. Um, and that was it. So I was, I was gobsmacked by that. So wow. I got, I, you know, having get the stamp of approval from her, that was, that was really what enabled me to do it. And was it healing? Yeah, it was. Because once you've been through, you've dealt with the funeral and the bureaucracy of death, that you have to fill in forms and you know, deal with solicitors and all that gubbins. And once people have stopped, I suppose, engaging with you on a daily basis with what you, you've just gone through, you are then left with this, it's, it's like being, it's like that movie where you walk through London and the whole thing has been vacuumed of people that you feel completely alone. And so... In writing the book, it was like resurrecting my wife because I went through all the all the stuff of how we met and all the good things that happened to us in our almost 40 years together, you know, career and personal. So that was that was amazingly helpful. And and a year on, it feels like not feels, but I now think of my when I think of my wife and I look at the photographs of her I see her in her prime when she was well rather than what the cancer did to her so that is a that that feels like you know it's a trick of what the brain does and what your memory does to help you survive but I'm so grateful for that rather than in that quagmire of thinking oh my god this is you know she she looks so ill and I would do anything to relieve her of that so now that that's that is gone. It's it feels much more positive going forward. Yeah, it's it's such a beautiful book. I mean, I messaged you <laughs> during the reading of it and afterwards because it was it's hilarious, it's eye opening, it's heart wrenching at times. I mean, I cried my eyes out at the end, and I never cry at books. I don't think it's very hard to get someone to feel that emotion with a book, but. It's like we're sort of there with you during it. It's so, so powerful. And, I, and I'm so glad that it was a healing process. And I think it's often the case, isn't it, with so many things in life, whether it's trauma that you've been through or just challenging times, we want to sort of not look there and push it away. But yeah. when you really investigate it and, and really turn towards it, I think it, it does help. It does help the the healing process. And not to aim to sort of end up being, oh, I'm fine now, I'm fixed, because yeah. obviously grief doesn't work like that or mm -hmm. the aftershock of trauma, but certainly to help you move with it. I think to to face it and look at it as, as awful as that can be at times, that's how you then start to to move with it rather than get stuck. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's also what I was also um, determined to do was not write something that was, oh, yeah, I'm we met in such and such a time and we had this perfect life and you know everything was rosy glosy the whole way through as some memoirs can be that because i've kept a diary since i was 10 years old because i inadvertently woke up on the back seat of a car and found my mother discovered my mother shagging my father's best friend on the front seat yeah that was a surprise to read that okay mm. so that is how i started keeping a diary because i couldn't tell my father obviously i no. certainly couldn't tell my mother i couldn't tell my friends I tried God, got no answer, and I was 10. And so I thought, well, the only way that I can make sense of this or make sure that it's not something that I've imagined was writing it down. And the exact same impulse happened during when the day my wife was diagnosed because it is such a cataclysmic thing to you know, try and deal with that in writing about it at the end of every day was a way of trying to I suppose, control it or make sense of what was going on so that what you get in the book is not a sort of jumping around of, oh, yes, well, we did this and we did that and it was also perfect, that during her illness, the day-to-day -day of the good things as well as the frustrations of it and when she got very prickly or very tired or all of those things, that you don't, that's not varnished over. You, you know, the, the reader gets to share what that journey is. Mm. Yeah, that's why I think it's so impactful because it just feels, again, extremely honest, much like if people follow you on your Instagram in, in exactly the same way. The The title, of course, comes from something that Joan said towards the end of yeah, her life. that she did. You're going to be okay. You just need to find a pocket full of happiness in every day. She did. 
that's a lot for you and your daughter to take on. How, how has that been? It, does it feel possible to to seek that happiness or to experience that happiness within grief? Fern, the thing that it did more than anything, it, it gave us permission to be happy, mm. which is something that anybody who is dealing with bereavement is something that almost without exception and the people that I've met and my own experience is that you feel guilty if you have a good day or you think there's joy to be discovered in things or you feel happy about something mm-hmm. because I suppose there's a sense that you're being judged by other people. You know, How can this person be happy when that has just happened to them? You, you feel guilty that you're enjoying something because you think, well, you know, my wife is not here to enjoy that with me. But because she was so sanguine and Calvinist and Abedonian Scots in how she dealt with her diagnosis. She was determined that she wouldn't have chemotherapy and that she wanted to die at home, which we, you know, managed to managed to do. So all of those things, she was the guide through all this. So when she said four days before she died, I know that you'll both be sad, try and find a pocket full of happiness in each day. It meant that that she wanted us to be, she said, she said, of course, I want you to be sad because I can't bear the idea that I'm going to be here anymore. But at the same time, you have to find happiness in things. Mm. So that was, you know, that was really a very smart and wise thing to have done for us. Because it's it's given us permission to to enjoy our life without her. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You said a moment ago, the process was almost an act of resurrection at times. Yeah. I don't know what your personal beliefs are, but did uh-huh. you have a sense Joan was around? Did you sense any signs after she'd passed? Fern, I have I have no uh, religious conviction at all. To me, it's I regret to say it's it. I love churches and choral music, but I find all of it superstition. But I had an experience when I was filming in Hamburg um, in this summer. I went to a a concert in this extraordinary concert hall and in the middle of um, the the piece of music, I felt as if she was sitting next to me and I looked to where she would have been and because she was five foot three and I'm six foot two, that I was looked down to her and she looked up to me and I knew that she wasn't there, but I still looked and it was an amazingly positive moment to have but I had no delusion that I was having um that she was spiritually there it was just I suppose I manifested and wanted her to be there because I knew how much she would have enjoyed this concert with me um and that's the only time that's happened Mm. but it wasn't a visitation I'm not you know goodness me if if a ghost arrived, if it was her or anybody else, I'd be the first one saying, yes, I'll go on paranormal TV in a nanosecond. But I'm a Darwinian rationalist, so I'm afraid. You know, my dad brought me up absolutely believing in the here and now. He said, heaven and hell are concepts that human beings have invented and that nobody's come back. And I said, yeah, but dad, you know, I learned, learned at school that Jesus had come back from the dead. And he said, well, when, do you know when the Bible was written? Richard. And I said, yes, it was written. And he said, well, it was written 150 years after this great man died. And I said, right, okay. And he said, well, you try and get people that came to a barbecue at our house a month ago, and you phone all of them up, and you ask, you know, 14 people to describe what everybody was wearing and what we talked about and what we ate. He said, I guarantee you will get 14 very different versions of what's gone on. So he said something that's happened 150 years later, before telephones and all that gubbins, um, he said, I'm afraid it's all lovely stories and parables. And, uh, you know, live by the Ten Commandments. But, you know, he resolutely did not believe in that. So the point of all this is that, I think you only have one life and you have to grab what is there as as much as possible. And because he died so young at the age of 53, I felt that every year that I've had since then has been a bonus because he was my guide until I was 53. And then I thought, what the hell do I do now? So each year I feel that that's, you know, I've, I'm living on borrowed time, as it were. Mm. So I try and cram as much as I can into the life that I've got. Yeah, I mean, we can all see that, and it's the most brilliant and exciting thing to see. Yeah, but it drives some people crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's wonderful. Um, you are 
to the outsider, someone that is seemingly very hopeful, and you I am. you say in the book you've always travelled in hope. Which I do. That was a lovely way of phrasing it. But when you're having to deal with a diagnosis where there is no hope, yeah, how do you cope? How did you have to dismantle your beliefs around hope? No, because you then try and find hope in each day. So when the rare form of lung cancer that my wife had, um, they diagnosed that there was a new drug called tapotinib, which had just come out in America, which I think she was the 160th person that was put onto it. It it hadn't been approved in the rest of the world, only only in the US. So you could only get it from the drug company as a kind of guinea pig. And it 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 had kept people living between 12 and 18 months. So when she got given that drug, we thought, oh, well, you know, at least see our 35th wedding anniversary and another Christmas, another Valentine's Day, you know, these three markers of the year. And what was so uh, frustrating about that, and you'll understand this, is that the drug worked for three months. And within two weeks, it halved the tumours that she had on her lungs. And, of course, you fantasise and think, well, if we can halve it in two weeks kind of just carry on doing it and get rid of it completely. And I'm sure that within X number of years, it will be able to do that um, for some other luckier person. But after three months, she said, I know that this drug has stopped working. And I said, why do you think that? She said, I just know it inside my body. And when she then had more tests, it was proved that it had stopped working. So she was one of the statistic of the 160 people on this drug where it was no longer working. And once, it's a curious thing because if you're given the prognosis 12 to 18 months, you try and map out what you're going to do with that time that you've got. But there's always the dread of thinking, well, how long is that 12 to 18 months going to be? Because at some point, they're going to say to you, it's, it, it is no longer working. And that came after three months. So if this doesn't sound contradictory, it was, there was a sense of, Relief is maybe the wrong wrong word, but resignation, that once we knew that there was nothing else to be done, that she wasn't going to have chemo and then lose all her hair and go through all that degradation, that she would try and live as best as she could for the, for the time that she had left, um, there was a kind of serenity that came over all of us that I could never have anticipated. So... We were very grateful for that. And she was able to die at home as she as she wanted. And we got to also in that time that we had to say and be with each other, say everything that we wanted to. Whereas, you know, my daughter's, one of her best friend's father dropped dead from a heart attack. Mm. It's such a shock. And somebody else, um, a doctor, a friend of ours, he went to work in the morning. His wife and kids said goodbye. Yeah, he dropped dead. Yeah. So... The nature of hope is that you try and find something that's that's going to be positive in the in the midst of the negative. Yeah, that's the same with my husband's mum died completely out of the blue, completely yeah. unexpected, and I think you don't ever really get over that. I didn't get to say yeah. what I needed to say. Exactly. It's such a difficult thing to make peace with. So it's wonderful that you've found the positive things and the hope and perhaps the silver linings throughout that you had that time yeah. that you had those moments where you could talk to each other and have acceptance yeah. or wh- wherever that you know you landed within that sort of experience I mean she was hilarious because she said I mean a week before she died she said well yeah I know that you're looking a bit glum she always called me Swaz and uh, she said I know you look a bit glum Swaz but she said everybody we know is going to die you included Every single person that has come to visit me or that we've seen in the hospital, anywhere you look around, everybody's going the same way. Yep. It just happens to be my turn now. Mm. And so I thought, well, you can't argue with that. You know, like... No, we just don't like to remember <laughs> that that's the fact. No, you don't. But it's but it's true. And it's, you know, it's a very Buddhist concept to go. We're all, you know, I think in a lot of Buddhist temples, they have a, a either a skeleton or something that represents death. So when you walk in, you you have that moment of gratitude for that that moment that day and and you you say in the book you know you you were really trying to be in the moment as much as possible mm-hmm. and of course you get dragged into the what ifs the future and and everything you've just described in well how how long is you know how many months do we have how many more springs do we have etc yeah. 
How did you pull yourself back into the moment and, and try and live in the now rather than racing ahead? Uh, I suppose it's a, how everybody deals with shock in some way that when I said to the palliative nurse uh, two weeks before she died, I said, how long do you think Joan has? And she was very practical and she said, do you really want to know? And I said, yes, I do, because... I don't want to live in a fantasy that it's going to be longer than it is. And she said, I think you'll be, it'll be, you'll be lucky if she has two more weeks. And you hear that and you're standing at the door and then that person goes away and that's when you fall apart and you're on your own because you think, well, how, you know, I can't tell her, I have to tell my daughter and you have to prepare. So that I think was the grisliest part of, of having to think about her funeral arrangements while she was alive. Because mm. that is the schizoid. You're on two railway tracks thinking, you know, how how can you possibly even conceive of that? Funeral shopping, you know, what kind of casket you're going to have or what flowers you're going to have or where is it going to be held when the person that you love most in the world is still alive and breathing? So, But you have to do that because if you don't, you will be wrong-footed and then unprepared. So... I suppose your your brain goes into you compartmentalize into what you practically rationally have to do but the the emotional wallop of that is that you are flawed and you know you just have to crumple in a corner and then pull yourself together because you practically have to do stuff like get medication and cook food and go shopping and you know all that stuff I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Something else I think you were brilliantly honest about in the book is the clarity that you have in those times, whether it's relating to uh, death or, again, challenging moments in life, you really see which friends are there for you solidly, who's going to show up. And it's so surprising. (laughs) And then who disappears off the face of the earth? And that's that's another layer of trauma to have to deal with. Like, where where is this person I thought was a great friend? Oh, that's it's it's astonishing because it. I've always thought that that friendship is like a pyramid where you you know at the apex of it you have your besties and your beloveds who you know that no matter what time of the day you're going to need their help or to lean on them for something, they will be there. And then, you know, down at the base, there are people that you know, acquaintances more like. But what happened is that very often the people that seemed to be on the periphery suddenly came into close-up and were really there for you. And other people who seemed higher up that pyramid just disappeared. And the most painful of that was that a couple that we had known for 25 years um, who'd been on a holiday together with and we'd had lunch with them in Portobello Road almost every other Saturday for years and years and years uh, got a couple of texts two biscuits and then when Joan actually died and they never came to visit her once and when she died I got a text a couple of days afterwards and then nothing it's not that you, I suppose it's, it's not that they weren't friends, but what kind of friends they are has been revealed. And I'm not, I'm pretty much, you know, all or nothing kind of person, as you can tell from my book. Um, <laughs> so I find that hard to forgive in that Joan couldn't understand why they had not been around this is that's the hardest thing to explain to somebody who is dying yeah how do you why why have they just disappeared is it an awkwardness around terminal illness i think some people maybe can't get over that and and you jolly well need to if it's a good friend you have to put all your own shit aside and be there yeah i think there is such an awkwardness around terminal illness death that there's this people don't know how 
to sort of manage it. And, and they're probably worried, what do I say yeah. to you? What do I say to Joan? And that stops them. And, and it's certainly not excusing it, but I think there is an awkwardness. Our there. daughter was much more ruthless than you or I. She just said, they're freeloaders, Dad. And that's what we found out. <laughs> they were just freeloading off you. <laughs> I thought, right, okay. But it's there's that clarity. It comes yeah. up in the biggest moments of life. Oh, everything just... is just sifted to the top. And yeah. you go, oh, I can just see everything so much more clearly now. In that moment where there's that sort of clarity for everyone, because I'm sure for you there was things that you realised about yourself in that extreme time. Yeah. You had a really interesting conversation with your daughter that I found fascinating. It's a subject that I'm intrigued about yes. and usually miserably fail at, and that uh -huh. is boundaries. Oh, yeah. So Olivia said to you, I feel like we don't have any boundaries in our relationship, yeah. which for you was you know, some sort of reveal. Wow, I didn't realise that this was something that was perhaps needed because there was a sense that this is who I am. This is my DNA. I share, I talk. Yeah. So how did you recalibrate how you acted around your daughter, especially through through a time of grief? Because there's a lot to share in those moments. Well, it is a daily, um, because I speak to her you know, two or three times a day, even though she's 33 and... She told me that none of her friends have this kind of full-on, intense relationship with their fathers. Um, but she identified when she was in her late teens that we have twin brain syndrome. And I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, if we're in a movie or watching telly together or whatever, um, Joan would be in the, between us and we'd both lean forward and see that the other one was either blubbing or laughing at what, what we were and Joan would go what the hell is wrong with the two of you <laughs> you know this is it's all too intense so I realised that we had this almost I don't know telepathy is too fancy a word for it but you just intuit what the other person is going to yeah. how they're going to react to stuff but the problem with that is that it is in, there's no boundary mm. so um she said, I think that your father didn't, you know, when you grew up with him, he didn't really have boundaries with you. And uh, you have just brought that into how you've been as a father. So I have to learn from my daughter on a daily basis to try and follow the rules that she sets down. <laughs> and I'm very bad at it. It's and you so are hard. obviously too. Awful. Yeah. It's really hard. It's so hard. Because I don't feel like a grown-up. And she's 33 and Same. I'm 65 and a half. And she says to me, you can't do that. You can't say that. Mm. You know, pull yourself, sort this out. Yeah. And I'm going, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and she says, no. <laughs> but I said, I don't want you to be in a situation where you feel like you're having to parent your parent in the mm. way that I did when my father was, you know, off his face when he got drunk at night. Um so she said, well, you know, we, you have to be mindful of stuff. So she draws up the boundaries and I, I have to um, adhere to them. But I think it's brilliant that you didn't get super defensive and go, what do you mean? I don't, you know, you were like, I'm going to listen. I'm going to I'm going to try and I'm going to go with this new dynamic. I think that's amazing. Well, yeah, but well, I don't know that she would she's quite so sanguine as you just portray that. Um, no, she says, you know, you, you've got to you've got to stick to the rules, Dad. Mm, it's tricky. Yeah. And how how have you navigated the last year in terms of you know those moments where you have felt in the pits of loneliness? Again, mm -hmm. I think loneliness is something we don't talk about enough. There's so many people out there who feel so lonely. It might not be due to bereavement. It could just be their, yeah. you know, circumstances that they find themselves in. And, you know, it's it's almost an impossible situation at times because who do you turn to? Who do you tell? Who do you speak to, connect with in those moments of loneliness? That's been one of the extraordinary things about social media, that, you know, as much as people poo-poo it and say that it's this, that it's that, it's full of trolls and it's, you know, the worst kind of stuff that's on on the net. I posted something in the middle of the night. I couldn't couldn't sleep and um it's before I started running again. And the response it got when I just talked about what it felt like to be unable to ever talk or touch to the person that you loved more than anybody else in the whole world ever again. It so resonated with people and there was a kind of avalanche of response. And so in responding to that, those messages, even though they're total strangers, there is that common human experience that, you know, binds everybody. So I found that really helpful. Mm. And in the middle of the night, it's the loneliest time. Yeah. 
when you can't sleep and it's dark and you go, everyone else is asleep and I'm not. And everybody else is sleeping with someone. Yeah. Or you assume that they are because yeah. suddenly the world, it's like, I remember the first time when um, Joan was pregnant with uh, Olivia that the whole world is suddenly full of pregnant people as you get a new car and you only see that model of car that you've just got. And when you're on your own, the world seems suddenly very coupled up. Mm. And I went to, um, I had to go to the south of France to deal with my wife's, because we have a holiday house down there, and her half, a very simple will that, you know, whoever went first left their half to the other to the other one. So I was the one dealing with the legal stuff of that. But when I went to a restaurant that we used to regularly go, and still, you know, I still regularly go to, and the maitre d' says, table for two, and you go, no, table for one. And that was the first time that I'd had to say that. Um, to somebody that didn't know that she had died. So that is that is the thing that sort of tsunamis you from left to field, that you have no idea that that's going to trip switch you again into feeling a bit um, bereft. Yeah, because there's uh, there's no rules with grief. You know, this no. is Jesse and I talk about this a lot because his mum died uh, 17 years ago and he'll still out of the blue get completely floored by a memory, something that's come up, and there are no rules. It's not like, oh, and it just keeps getting better every day. It's just undulating, and I think that's been very helpful for people to see your experience of of that as well, that it's not like a year on and here I am feeling great. It's some days are good, some days are very, very tricky. And just going back a little bit to what you were saying in terms of when we're talking about boundaries and then looking into your past relationship with your father. I know that you started seeing an analyst at some point in your yeah, life. Yeah, I had a breakdown life. when I was 42. And that helped you sort of connect the dots yeah. in a way. How, how did that work? How, how, what, what did you realise? Well, when my mum left when I was 10 and my dad hadn't been a heavy drinker before then, was doing a bottle of Johnny Walker per day, and at nine o'clock at night, there was it was literally the changeover point where he went from being charming and funny and the person that I knew and loved into the monster. So dealing with that meant that I went to the psychoanalyst and he said, you are exactly the age your father was when he was cuckolded by your mum. Uh, he'd lost his job essentially because Swaziland became independent at that same time. And he had a 10-year-old child. And he said, you are 42 and your daughter is 10 years old. And he said, somehow in your subconscious, all of this has led to a complete, you've, you've hit the wall. And once I understood that, and he made all these, the psychoanalyst made all these connections um, about boundaries that, because my father had this, it was an extraordinary thing that when he was drunk, he would absolutely lambasted into all of the people that were our friends. So I had this schizoid experience as a teenager of knowing what the friendships were like when he was sober with people, but also what he, what I thought was the truth that he thought about them in reality when he was drunk. So that, and because I, I was included in that, which a child really shouldn't be, yeah. you, there's no boundary. So as a result, I'm not an alcoholic, but uh, I have not had a boundary with my daughter. So from right from the get-go, when she was could talk, I have always shared everything with her. And at some point, you know, children want to have a, a boundary about mm. what you can and can't talk about. So I'm still learning that. Do you <laughs> have the same yeah, thing? Yeah, it's interesting. I think looking at generational patterns is fascinating. Yeah. I, I had my mum come on the podcast as a guest because yeah. we were like, let's let's see what happens. And she's had a um, difficult time mental health-wise as her mum did. Yeah. And and then I can, I can see the patterns in myself and, I, and I'm trying to go some of this needs to, the buck needs to stop with me, yeah. but it's so hard. It's so hard to then change learned habits. And yeah. 
see things differently. It's so, it's humbling. My get out was always with my jaw. And I said, well, you know, I am not a violent alcoholic who mm. turns into somebody else. What you see is what you get. I've been consistently extreme <laughs> since you were born. Um, what was the revelation for you when you interviewed your mum? I think I had a lot more compassion for myself because I had more compassion for my mum. Yeah. Because I could see, and also for my nan. My nan was just my sweet nan. Oh, lovely sweet nan. But yeah. actually, my nan was seriously troubled. So to then see how that affected my mum, because she wasn't parented and sort of nurtured accordingly. The waterfall of damage. Waterfall of damage, which we've all got. Yeah. yeah. We've all had parents or grandparents who lived through World War Two, And the ripple effects of that, I think, have been catastrophic. It's amazing what you said about compassion. Mm. Because when I confronted my mum in a very unaggressive way with the help of, you know, psychoanalyst guiding me about what, how I should go about this. When I finally spoke to her about what had happened, this, you know, the ele elephant in the room about her bonking, you know, <laughs> dad's best friend to see the car that I wasn't supposed to see when I was 10. She leant forward and cried for the first time that I'd ever seen her cry. And she was, you know, already an old woman by then. Um, this was 18 years ago. She said three magic words, please forgive me. And the moment she said that, every vestige of blame or, you know, the stuff that I built up in my head literally just wow. evaporated. Mm. And the power dynamic in our relationship changed completely. So it, it was extraordinary. And, you know, she's now 91. She still drives, plays bridge three times a week, you know, reads five books for a publishing company. Amazing. Um, she's very, very feisty. Whereas there was a kind of barricade of what I thought I would never be able to break through about what had happened. Uh, once she had understood where I was coming from and I understood her point of view, all that fixed judgment that you have as an adolescent literally collapsed. Mm -hmm. So I'm very grateful for that. So yeah. anybody who's who's gone to counseling or psychoanalysis or whatever you call it to get help, if you had a limb broken, yeah. In an accident, you'd go and get it fixed in a hospital. So if something's not working in your brain um, or emotionally, go and get help. That's, you know, I just, I think it's miraculous. Do you still have regular therapy today? No, I had 18 months. I had 18 months of it and uh, when I was 42. And then at the end of it, uh, Christopher Bolas, this extraordinary psychoanalyst, said to me, he said, well, I think that the thing that you came here about has been fixed. Mm. And I said, oh, you're bored. Or you? And he said, no, 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 come back. I won't charge you. <laughs> I come you back in a week's time. <laughs> yeah, come back in a week's time. And if you still feel <clears throat> that you you need, you know, help with this or you know, get this thing sorted out, then come back. And I went back and I was there for half an hour and I said, no, you're right. Wow. Um, so I left. And I saw him in California during the um, – because he, he was living between California and, and London, and he's now retired to Santa Barbara. And I was there during the Oscar runaround four years ago and uh, went to see him. And it was, it was the first time that I was able to ask him a personal question because I'm you know, very nosy. And <laughs> in all the 18 months, he wouldn't tell me if he was married, had children wow. or anything. So there were no clues whatsoever. And I found that so frustrating because the thing is that I know whether you find when you interview people, um, some people only like to talk about themselves and don't have any interest in anybody else. And you, we know all those people, you can see them coming a mile off. Yep. But to me, it's a conversation. Yeah. So you've got to find out. So I am riveted to know about the waterfall effect of what yes. your brand damages. Person. Yes, I want to know. I want to know everything about everyone. I, I get a so kick you, out of it. So have you spoken to your grandmother about what Sadly, you discovered with your mum? Sadly, my grandmother died really prematurely. Um, I was probably only 21. And it's one of my biggest regrets is that I didn't sit with her. She told me a bit about she was evacuated in the war yeah. and to a family that treated her appallingly, which was, you know, the start of her you know, wow. really her, her mental health decline. And then her sister died of TB when she was seven. So oh she had a lot God. of very young sort of childhood trauma. And so she told me all of this when I was probably in my late teens. And I'd be so, sort of going, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, like not getting it. And now yeah. I would do anything to go 
tell me everything. And to be honest, I probably need to do it a bit more with my mum because we've done it in this context because I'm very comfy in this dynamic. I'm in control. You're in control. <laughs> I'm, I'm steering the conversation. Exactly. I should probably do it in a more ad hoc way because I think there's always questions that we can ask or conversations like you've had with your mum where she said, please forgive me. You know, you have to... You have to lean into those moments. They're not going to happen spontaneously. I think you have to be okay, here's courageous a enough. Here's to. a suggestion. Have you ever asked your mum to write down what her view of stuff is or her experience of stuff? Because that's what happened with my mother, which this psychoanalyst managed to, I suppose, uh, provoke uh, in a very non-aggressive way so that my mother wrote me probably a 12-page letter. Wow. Whereas normally it had been like, oh, dear Richard, uh, hailstorm, dogs had to go to the vet, the begonias have been ruined, love <laughs> mum, kind of thing. And there was this revelatory wow. about what it was like to be a young colonial wife in the 50s in Swaziland with the sort of strict pecking order of that colonial life. And so I got an insight because she wrote it from the heart of what led her to being on the back seat of the car, you know. Quite. So, and once I understood that, then once you understand something, then it's, you you can't hold on to the no. grudge in the same way. So uh, what I'm saying is that yeah, I'm gonna get your mum to try and it. write down yeah. her version of what's gone she about something. She wrote a tiny, tiny, when I wrote a book, the first book that I wrote on mental health yeah. was about depression. And I said, we'd never, I'd never used the D word in front of her. I was, that just felt completely weird and inappropriate. And I said, I'd love to know your experience of depression. I think I emailed it because I was yeah. too scared. Yeah. And, you know, I'd never gone near that subject matter. And she wrote a really punchy, amazing piece about her depression and her experience of it. And we've since talked a bit more about it. But I'd probably like to look into that more generally. Just like, tell me about your teens. Tell me about your childhood. And I think she would love to do it. My mum's a really good writer naturally, so I think right. she would love to do it. So, and I can just say that Richard E. Grant made me do it, so she'll definitely reply. Tell your mother Richard E. Grant wants to know her mother's story. Yeah. Because in maybe writing about her mother's story, she will be able to, you know, she'll be recalling stuff from her childhood mm. and what her mother has revealed to her. Yeah. It's so interesting, isn't it? Oh, it's, just, it's the map. Of, it's the map. Uh, oh, it's the map of how, what, and who, and what, yeah. and how we are. I know that. It is. It's, yeah. It is. It's It's the map. Um, I, I can't have this conversation without mentioning the Oscars. Because yes. I think every Brit was cheering <laughs> you on, just riveted watching you enjoy all of it, and just loving watching you there. I think we felt like we were all there as well. And I loved reading about that section of your life in the book because there's an amazing moment where you're at this you know, fabulous party, everything you could have ever dreamed of from when you were starting out in your acting career. Yeah. And the feeling was, hmm, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> now you've seen Madame de Swords come to life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so what? Yeah, it's all it's, right. Yeah. Mm. I thought that was brilliant. You don't anticipate that that's going to happen. You know, it was the last thing that I thought was going to happen when you are in the full sweetie shop of fame. And, yeah. you know, every single person is somebody that you've either admired, newly admired or long admired your entire life. And then at the end, there was it was an amazing moment at the end of the governor's ball, uh, waiting at in this underground car park where there was this bun fight of celebrities trying to get their cars. And curiously, Oprah Winfrey, <laughs> the Spielbergs, and Mr. and Mrs. Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson.com, their cars turned up pronto presto right Peculiar. at the beginning. And the rest of the thing, people waving their tickets and all in their DJs and <laughs> women taking their shoes off. It was just sublime to Chaos. see that. Chaos. And egos fighting oh, for the yes. top spot. Yeah. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, and you're seeing people <laughs> that would never be cast in a movie together talking to each other. Oh, I just love it was it was it was the antidote to all of that stuff. It was brilliant. <laughs> it's just so good because I think most of the time, you know, I hate going out anyway. And and I'm and I'm glad that that was the conclusion because a lot of the time I'm sat on the sofa watching a great movie thinking, yeah. it cannot be better than this, surely. Like yeah. nothing could be and it and it isn't. Yeah, it's just not <laughs> watching a movie on the sofa is the best thing it is the best thing the exactly. best thing ever yeah. mm. well Richard 
thank you so, so much for being well, here Well, Fern, today. thank you so, so much for having me here today. Oh, it's just been a joy. And this book is, I was so gutted when I finished it. And I only have that probably like once a year where I'm just like, I don't want this book to end. Please never end. It was so gorgeous. Thank you. I wish that I'd met Joan. I oh. wish that I'd met her. Well, you must know some of something of her from the book. I, I really got an amazing, amazing sense of her and, um, and I'm just glad that we got to, to talk about Joan and, and this beautiful dedication to her and your marriage and just love itself. It's a beautiful book and Thank I you. just hope that everybody loves it as much as I do. Well, I know they will, loves it as much as I did. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Do you know what? I'm very grateful to Richard for many things. One of them is for suggesting that I do more exploring of my family history because I know it does always lead to more understanding and compassion. I think it's just a very good idea getting family members to write things down. I've actually already texted my mum and she's really up for it. So thank you, Richard. And thank you, Richard, just for sharing so beautifully today. And so honestly, I I felt brilliant after that conversation. I feel very, very privileged to have had it. Richard's wonderful book, A Pocket Full of Happiness, is out now and you absolutely must read it. It's I didn't want it to end. And you can always let us know what these chats have made you think by joining us on Instagram at Happy Place Official. A huge thank you again to Richard, to the producer Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio and to you lot. I bloody love you. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.